0: So, uh, Philip, you're recording?
1: Double checking. (laughs) Yep. The reel to reel tape is (laughs) running. (laughs) Excellent.
2: This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want. And the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent, talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you, and on Hired you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you, and we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know! Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance, so if you check them out at the show's link, that's Hired.com slash Freelancer Show, you can get double their normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300, so go check them out at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And Curtis McHale. Hello. And Jonathan Stark.
3: Hi there. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Ruven Lerner, <laughs> with a slightly less deep voice than Jonathan, although that's not hard to accomplish. And our special guest this week is our old friend, Kai Davis. Hi, Kai.
4: Hey, my friends. I am so excited to be here.
0: So, Kai, for the handful of people who have not heard of you or don't know who
4: you are, tell us about yourself. First, how dare they? How dare I? <laughs> second? Uh, uh, I'm a marketer who specializes in working with freelancers and consultants. I help freelancers and consultants uncover hidden profits in their business and get more clients without spending more on marketing. I write a daily email newsletter uh, on freelancing and consulting and how to get more clients. And you could sign up for that if you're interested at KaiDavis.com, K-A-I-D-A-V-I-S.com. And if you sign up today, I guarantee you will get tomorrow's lesson. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Well, Kai has oodles of things that he can teach us and tell us about. Today, we are going to concentrate on what happens when you don't have clients. What happens when you are in a famine? Kai, I want you to expand on that a little bit and then we can start jumping into questions and attacking you for excellent advice
4: excellent please attack away so there's that common idea in freelancing and consulting of the feast and famine roller coaster and we have a lot of clients we get busy we may not be be focusing on our marketing systems or our sales or our pipeline and those big projects finish and we enter into the famine we don't have a pipeline of leads we don't have clients and we're sort of the, in this unstable position of not having work when we really want it and so uh, uh, today i'm going to share a couple ideas and concepts around how to future proof yourself against this happening and if you find yourself in this situation, what can you do to help stimulate conversations with potential clients or generate uh, uh, revenue for your business, close new projects and get yourself out of this famine mode? And if we have time, I'd also love to talk about how a famine mode isn't necessarily a bad thing or going into a famine uh, portion of the feast famine cycle. If you're preparing for it in the right way, it could actually be a boon and a growth point for your business.
0: Excellent. So I, th- I think many listeners are familiar with the whole description of feast or famine that happens in the consulting world or, or can happen in the consulting world where you've got two months of people calling you off the hook and you say to them, well, I don't have time. I'd love to service you. And then after that calling you off the hook and you being busy, busy, busy and making lots of money, then you've got two months when no one is calling you and you're really worried about what you're going to do. So for those who are not familiar with that term, like that's basically what we're talking about, where you're on the famine end of things and I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, it's very painful and lonely and upsetting. And you're like, well, maybe you know it's a whole imposter syndrome thing. Maybe people figured me out. Maybe they know that I'm not so good at what I do. Um, so it happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know on the on the show we often talk about how like how to ensure that it doesn't happen. But even if you got lots of clients, even if you're really successful, you will occasionally hit a dry spell of some sort for all sorts of crazy reasons. So, so what's so so, walk us through. Like, say, some someone's you know in their consulting work, and generally you want to be thinking a few weeks, maybe a few months ahead. And you realize, oh, like <laughs> I don't have any work, and that's not going to pay the mortgage, the rent, for food, you know, and and so forth. Uh, what what do you do? Wh- when should you notice this? I guess is a good good plan, good place to start.
4: That's a good question. I think that ideally you're using some sort of means to track prospects, track deals, track past clients. I use Pipedrive as my uh, contact relationship management tool. And that allows me to have an idea of, well, how many people am I in conversation with? How many people are close to closing on a deal? How many people said, not this quarter, maybe next quarter, follow up then. And so I'm able to have this top-down perspective on what my future pipeline of work looks like. So ideally, you want to know, What are two months ahead of time if things are looking a little lean so you're able to start activating marketing systems, telling people, hey, you know what, I may not be available today, but I am available in two months. If you'd like to reserve time to work with me, here's how to reserve time, put down a deposit, move forward that way. But I even think if we're talking about noticing it ahead of time one very important skill is starting to budget against famine saying well hey i need to have even if it's just one one two three months of money set aside for the operating expenses of my business paying my salary even if it's cutting it down to a reduced rate canceling a couple subscription services not eating out as much giving yourself that budget so when you do hit that point of oh wow that project fell through or hey that month-long gig isn't going to happen You future-proofed against it a bit by saying, okay, I'm going to be drawing against the savings account I set up for this situation, but that savings account is going to make me less stressed and less worried and allow me to say, okay, I have money set aside exactly for this situation. But we want to be aware of these situations four to eight weeks, if not more, ahead of time. It's terrible to learn a week before the project is supposed to kick off, hey, that month-long thing we were going to work on. We don't actually have the money for it and we can't pay you for it. So we want to be taking a proactive future look at what our pipeline looks like and how we could tell if we have a famine coming up or if we have a solid roster of potential clients to turn into deals.
3: I want to jump in real quick and point out that if you don't do that and you're desperate for work, it leads to all kinds of things that create a vicious cycle Mm -hmm. where you are not negotiating from a position of strength and you're not willing to walk away from projects that really are not a great fit. So, you know, you're just, uh, you know, you're not doing your best work. You're just doing something that is kind of like just to pay the bills in an emergency that's not really in your core competency. And you take on clients that are, that you know are exhibiting red flags and are almost certainly going to be a nightmare just because your mortgage is due and you don't have any money. So Mm -hmm. you kind of like kick the can down the road and say, yep. Uh, I'll just. Take, this will be the last time. I'll, I'll just do it this one time. I'm not going to do it again. And then all of a sudden, you're not getting referrals because you worked with a client where you had a terrible project because you didn't get along, and it it creates this vicious cycle that's that contributes to the
4: problem entirely entirely i went through that exact cycle once in my business uh, back in i think 2012 uh, uh hit a dry spell had a prospect contact me wanted to work on a large project together there were a number of red flags but it was a good amount of money and i was like okay i think i could manage it project did not go well ended up refunding them and so i was out x months of work i was out the money that i had planned on getting for them, had received for them, and ended up returning to them. And so it left me in the exact same position. And exactly like you said, Jonathan, I essentially kicked the can of this problem down the road a few months and found myself in a very, very similar situation. And it was no good. So it very much was negotiating from a position of scarcity, thinking like, oh, this is the only lead I have. What am I supposed to do? with a savings account built for this situation, with a strong pipeline, with knowledge of your pipeline, then you're able to easily avoid these types of vicious cycles for your business. Cool.
1: Something related to that is the idea of scheduling work out into the future. I remember the Mm -hmm. first time that I sort of had to to deal with that. It was, terrifying is not the right word, but it was like scary. Like if I say I can't, take this project now. Am I going to lose the project? Right. Do you see that mm-hmm. in folks who work with Kai or have you
4: got thoughts? On very, that? very often. I see that hesitancy and that worry. I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in people I coach and people I consult with. And what the truth of the matter really is, if you have that thought in your mind, if I don't take this project, well, nothing else is going to happen. I think it's because you don't have confidence, A, in yourself and your ability to generate work and provide value, and B, confidence in your marketing systems to generate leads for your business. So if you find yourself in that situation of, well, gee, this is the only lead, I better take this project, it's, it's going to end in a bad time. And I think it's really indicative of a lack of sophistication in the marketing for your business to bring in new clients, to bring in new prospects, to bring in new projects. So it's it's kind of like um, it's a sort of feedback
1: mechanism or a diagnostic, if, if pointing to where else you need to make things better.
4: Very much so. Very much so.
3: Yeah, I talk to
1: a lot of a lot
3: of freelancers, and you know, most people they're lucky if they get a lead a year. Mm-hmm. Never mind a month. Never mind a pipeline. Mm-hmm. They just sort of talk. You know, they maybe have one whale client that's kind of paying the bills, and like every once in a while, with complete randomness someone gives their name to somebody or somebody like, you know, they hit the Google search lottery and somebody contacts them about something. But the the notion of using something like pipe drive in a situation like that is probably too soon. There's like something else that needs to be done first.
4: Well, yes and no. I think that you're right in that the tool may be a little too advanced, but I think the concept or the strategies, a tool like pipe drive allows you to activate are useful in that situation. So what I'll typically recommend to people who find themselves in that famine mode, they don't have a pipeline, I'll say, okay, exercise number one, sit down with like a stack of blank printer paper and just brained up, have your LinkedIn open if you want, have your contacts on your phone open if you want. Brainstorm everyone you know in your industry who's a past client, who's a current client, who was a lost lead, and just write them all down. Uh, If it's a small number, you could handle this manually. If it's a large number, maybe over 10 or 20 people, then I think a tool like Pipedrive is a valuable tool because it lets you start to schedule out, okay, my next action with this person is reach out to Jonathan and say, hey, Jonathan, I have some time available in September. Uh, My ideal client is XYZ. Do you know anybody who's looking for an outcome like this? And just starting to stimulate conversations with associates in your industry, colleagues, other consultants, service providers, past clients, lost leads, people who might be able to give you a referral or pass your name along to generate those next projects. So often I hear word of mouth as being the number one marketing channel for a number of freelancers and consultants. But when I dig in and ask, okay, what systems do you have around that? How do you stimulate these conversations? How do you get these referrals? The answer is, well, we don't really have a system. And so I think exactly to your point, people might have that whale client. By luck, by a lucky roll of the die, they end up getting a referral and it turns into maybe a second client. But once you have a documented system, even if it's hey, th- every three weeks I want to check in with you know this person and make sure they're doing well and see if they could refer me to someone or at the end of every project saying, hey, who else would you like to see me work with next or who else do you know who needs help solving a similar problem? By being intentional about it and by having a system you could follow, just a documented standard operating procedure, it allows you to take control of what's really been a lucky roll of the die in getting a word of mouth referral or another type of referral and turn it into something you're consciously activating with that prospect Or that client, or that associate in your industry.
3: Cool. That makes a lot of sense when you put it like that. It it feels like I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad you went through that because it it makes a ton of sense when you put it like that. And I can imagine a lot of people listening being like, Oh, I don't need a. I don't need something to manage my leads. I don't have any and, and to, to think like, oh, well, that's kind of like maybe a chicken or egg problem. Maybe you need Mm -hmm. a system set up to kind of remind you to do it and, and put the, not guardrails, but you know, have everything, all all this has been thought through for years. So why not get yourself set up to succeed with the kind of tools that you will need, um, I don't know. How would you put it like through throughout the course of, you know, so so everybody's just not front loaded at the very beginning and say, OK, you know, at least we've got people in here and it's going to encourage me to move them through it. That makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense.
4: Yeah. And just building that habit, I think I mean, uh, uh, after writing the Outreach Blueprint, after writing Podcast Outreach, I'm a huge huge advocate for the value and power of follow-up in marketing activities and sales activities and prospecting activities. And so even if it's just building that habit of, okay, I have 20 people in Drive, They might not be leads, but they're people in my industry the goal is I'm developing the habit of reaching out to one or two of them a day and saying, hey, how are things going? What's up in your business? Stimulating those conversations can lead to more meetings, more opportunities for collaboration, more referrals, just reminding people you're out there. So then as leads start to come in, exactly to your point, you already have the system set up. Great. I'm going to add them to pipe drive. I'm going to set a reminder. I'm going to contact them in a week. We'll follow up they don't turn into a project or a lead, I'll be able to set an activity, hey, follow up in two months, see how it went with the other agency they picked, or see how their business is doing now, and if this is a better time. In a sense, we have the habit formation of using something like Pipedrive or a CRM to manage your contacts, remembering to contact people, remembering to follow up with people, and then the actual pipeline aspect. Okay, when a lead comes in, we're applying that same habit to stimulating conversations, moving them forward, and making sure that we're focused on the right thing or they're a good fit, but I think just having those tools in place moves it from, okay, I'm keeping it all in my head or on this piece of paper to, hey, I have a system built exactly for this purpose. As you said, it's been thought through for years. How can we have a CRM that allows us to effectively manage our relationships? Well, there's dozens of choices out there And I think the value is really identifying the relationships you want to stimulate and cultivate and manage and see how you could turn those relationships into future opportunities. And having a tool that reminds you of who to contact and when makes it so much easier than remembering who to contact yourself. I was going to
5: say, how do you convince your clients to actually do that, right? Like a lot of things I do is get clients into routine with their day so they can actually do work as opposed to figure out what they're going to do all day. And like this tool is part of it. How do you, how do you get them to jump that hurdle from knowing they should? Cause most of them do to actually doing it.
4: Uh, I'll assign specific assignments for people. And I, one of the things I've been working on over the last six months of a, as I've done more and more coaching is trying to figure out what sort of the minimum assignment to move somebody forward is. And so at first when I started, it was like, great, you need to use a CRM loaded up. And they were like, I got stuck on step zero here. And so I realized, okay, to to help facilitate it, the first step is block out work on business time. Maybe it's two hours a week, maybe it's four hours a week, however much. Dedicate this time so it's sacred time. It's time you spend working on your business. I assigned that as homework step one. And now I know every week they have two or four hours or more to work on their business. Then step two might be like, okay, great. You Do you have a tool to set up to manage these relationships? No. Okay, great. You're going to sign up for PipeDrive. You're going to add me as a contact and you're going to send an email to me using Pipedrive. And I'll have them send me screenshots along the way just to show that they're doing it. I'll have them reach out to me if they're running into problems. But I try to break it down into as discreet a series of steps as possible And use me as that guinea pig. Because what I've noticed is when people start outreach of any sort, either to past clients or acquaintances, they get the fear in them of outreach that, oh, what if people respond negatively? Or what if they don't respond at all to my email? And so by saying, hey, great, we're going to start by dedicating work on business time. Then we're going to set up the tool. Then you're just going to contact me. Then you're going to brainstorm 10, 20, 30 people to reach out to. And just like you reached out to me. Reach out to them by breaking it down into these individual steps. I found it makes it a lot easier for people to adopt a tool and start integrating it into their workflow. Am I explaining that well?
0: Yeah, and and it, it, I never really thought about it as getting into good habits with a small number of clients, so that when you get a larger number of clients, it'll be you'll just be fitting them into the same system, and it just you're just scaling scaling it up. But if you start scaling from zero, then it's just so much easier
4: hmm I've definitely been in, been in the position where I have a large number of contacts, a large number of leads, and I load it into pipe drive and I'm like, oh gosh, I feel overwhelmed. There's 100 people in here. And so I like that idea of approaching it smaller, starting with a smaller number of people so it doesn't feel overwhelming. When I uh, coach people on outreach marketing campaigns, I will say it will feel like we want a database of 500 people when we start out. We don't want that. We want 10. Because if we start with 500, it will feel overwhelming. It will be too hard and too much at once. By starting small, we're able to build that habit. We're able to get over the fear, and then we could start scaling. But if we start with 100, 200, 500 people in there, it's going to be too much at once. So I really, really like starting small, starting simple, and then scaling from there.
1: Kai, let's drill down into what do you say – for me, that was always a conundrum – I, you know, sort of as an introvert, it's like you feel like it's if it's just a pure naked business request that feels somehow not right. And if it's like, are you trying to chat people up and (laughs) maintain a social
4: connection? Can you talk about that a little bit? Ideally, it's a great question. Ideally, I'm trying to maintain a social connection before, during and after a project that we work on together or some sort of activity that we've been involved in together. So if and when I do reach out, it doesn't feel at odds or it doesn't feel like a weird ask. But sometimes we don't have that liberty. Sometimes it's reaching out to people who we haven't had contact with for three, six or even more months. What I like to do in those situations is a process I call a value added follow up. So instead of just reaching out and saying, hey, we haven't talked in a while. Do you have a project for me? Instead, find a relevant resource. Maybe it's an interview you've done. Maybe it's an interview somebody else has done that's relevant to the clients or the associate's business. Maybe it's an article. Whatever it is, by focusing your first or following messages on something of value for them. Hey, Philip, I just saw this article about specialization. I think it would be fascinating for you and maybe your list. Check it out. We're able to start stimulating that conversation without it being a first and foremost ask, hey, do you have a project? But beyond that, If we don't have that luxury, what I focus on is a referral ask. So I might reach out and say, hey, Philip, I have an opening in October and I'm curious if you know anybody who matches this client profile. And I'll describe who my ideal client is, the outcomes I could help generate for them, what the specific next step for anybody interested in working with me is. And so I might be reaching out to a past client or somebody I might want to work with. But my ask is not directed at them in terms of, do you have a project? It's, do you know somebody who would benefit from this? I might be describing them exactly, and we might have a conversion event where they say, well, hey, you're asking for referrals here, but we actually need the service. But even if they don't have an immediate need for your service within that organization, by clearly spelling out exactly who you best work with and how you could help those businesses, it helps them know, okay, this is who I want to connect you with. This is the outcome you could generate for them. I could immediately think of people to connect you with or refer to you. So I like this outreach with a focus on referrals as the mechanism. So it's not feeling like, oh, shit, I need to tell Kai, no, we don't need to work together. Instead, it's, hey, yeah, I can think of two people or, ah, you know, I actually can't think of anybody, but thanks so much for reaching out. So I think referrals as an outreach mechanism here can be a wonderful way to stimulate that conversation in a non-salesy way. And if you're able to add any value added communication to that email, an interview, an article, something else, it's just even better because it serves as the point of the email. Hey, here's an interview you might enjoy that I just did. By the way, I have an opening in October. Do you have any associates or colleagues or people who work in the industry who would need help with an outcome like X? We talk about it on this podcast episode. My ideal client is Y. Uh, Do you know anybody who would be a good fit? And so it feels like a natural email. It's focused on providing value. Here's an interesting episode. Here's some social proof. And it also has that direct ask for referrals to people in our target market, which could result in either the person we're emailing contacting us and saying, can we work together? Or thinking of people who might be a great fit to connect you with.
0: Mm-hmm. I love this. I, I love I love that idea because it's always very daunting to email someone and say, "Hi, we haven't spoken in six months, but I, I'm sort of hard up for work." And and every and they can tell right when mm-hmm. you say to them. Uh, you know I, I do you need do you need me to do any work for you in the next month or two? It's like oh please, it, it's it reeks of desperation. But if you're not asking them directly, if you're asking them for referral. And if you're saying, these are the sorts of things I can do, then you're sort of tickling their memory. And they're like, oh, yeah, that, that person did the, do this for me. And they'll either give you the referral, I mean, ideally, or, or, or have you do the work themselves. I, I think it's, that's great.
4: Mm-hmm. And it's very much a numbers game. Uh, when I talk to people about referral outreach as a means to stimulate conversations to generate clients, one of the major questions I get back is, what if they say no? And my response is, that's okay. Not everybody is going to say yes or be able to generate a referral. What's important is, again, habits and systems. If we develop a habit of following up with people, having a referral email that focuses on adding value, asking for that referral, and we send it at a predetermined time point, after a project, well, okay, maybe we only have a 10% success rate with that email. But if we're consistently sending it out, if we're making it a habit, that's going to generate more leads and referrals for our business. So it doesn't always have to land, but what needs to happen is consistent practice of the skill.
3: If I could loop back just for a second to something you said a minute ago, Kai, about (laughs) blocking out a couple hours every week to work on your business. That's usually terrifying or comical to (laughs) people who bill by the hour because they look at that as, Oh, that's $800 I lost
4: Mm -hmm. because I
3: could have been working, doing client work. So uh, of course I'm always going to take any chance to bang on the ditching hourly drum. Uh, And that's what I'm doing here, which is that if if, it is that you need to get away from that, you really need to, in order to grow your business. Like part of the, the feast famine cycle is a symptom of hourly billing. Mm -hmm. In my world, in my world, I see hourly billing is the root problem or perhaps the root problem behind that is that people don't understand the value of the outcomes they create. That's the real root problem. But Mm -hmm. but getting getting away from hourly billing by determining what your value is will get you out of this mindset of like, I could never take, you know, a day out of my week to work on my business. Well, if you can't do that, then you're not going to have much of a business. You really need to do that and changing this mindset away from, you know, every hour I'm not billing is a hundred dollars or $200 or whatever your hourly rate is. That's, that's a hundred bucks I'm losing. It's, it's, a, it's a, can- like, that's why I call it a cancer. It's a terrible, it's like a mind eater. You know, you just need to get away from that so that you can carve out some time and not feel like, you know, it has to contribute directly to the bottom line. Because you're built you know you're trying to build something for the future. and and it's really hard to do that when you th- think that you're selling your time. So just stop,
4: <laughs> yeah, completely, completely agreed. And you're absolutely right. I fell into this trap when I was billing hourly myself, where I felt any business development activity any time spent working on the business, I could be billing hourly for this. Why would I not do that? And it leads to a point where, yes, you may have projects. Yes, you may have a consistent flow there, but, If you aren't making the time to work on your business, if you aren't treating your business as you would a client project or better than you would a client project, how could you really expect it to grow? And so I'm in in complete agreement. I think hourly billing pushes people down a path of, well, I want to make more money, so I need to bill more hours. So why would I sacrifice some time that I could bill hourly? If you're billing based on value, if you're billing based on fixed price, you no longer need to worry about, well, X hours in a week. It's client wants this outcome. I understand the value of this outcome. I'm charging based on the value. Maybe it only takes me an hour to implement this project. Great. Client got value. I got value. Everybody wins here. And it frees up that time to work on your business. But sometimes people are already in that hourly modality, and it's hard for them to make that switch. What I typically encourage is starting very small, blocking out one hour a week recurring, two hours a week recurring, and growing it over time. Seeing that you are getting a return on that time you spend working on your business, maybe it's the only time where you're actually doing business development activities, proactively reaching out to prospective clients, helping fight the uh, feast, famine, roller coaster, and make sure you have that pipeline. As you start to see results from even just two hours a week invested into your business, then it becomes easier to say, oh, wow, my pipeline is looking pretty full. I've booked solid for the next three months. Let me devote more time to working on my business. Now I'm able to raise my rates. Now I feel more confident. Now I'm coming at it from a abundance mentality instead of a scarcity mentality. But it very much is an internal mental shift. And I think you're absolutely right. It connects deeply to being reliant on hourly billing and breaking that cycle, moving away to being pricing yourself on value and the outcomes for your client.
0: And uh, I'll, I'll also say, like, I mean, so as everyone knows, I I do mostly training. And um, I, one of the nice benefits of working in the high tech world is that people change jobs often and people um, remember you, assuming you did a good job. I guess they remember if you did a terrible job, too, but that's not really useful for our, for our purposes. And so I find that as I've been doing training for longer and longer and as people change jobs more and more, um, I'm getting calls from companies where I didn't talk to them, but it's sort of internal referrals. Where you know, some company will say, gee, we need to do Python training," and some will say, "Oh, you know, at the last company I was at, we had this guy come in and he did training. You should call him." And uh, it's it's phenomenal. So basically, I'm getting calls from companies that I don't know, I've never spoken to, but they sort of on their own are initiating the um, the whole uh, you know the whole referral thing. And this will happen to you, right? Over time, as you reach more and more clients. I'd like to think you won't need to reach out to them as much, that they'll sort of do it to you. Um, and it is a numbers game then. Because if you've, if you've worked with five clients last year, probably won't happen very much. But if you worked with 50 clients in the last three years, then someone is likely to do that or to respond to the sort of email that, that Kai mentioned.
4: Entirely, I I always love. I mean, I think this is why it's valuable to keep in touch with past clients because even if you're checking in every other month, you'll figure out, oh, Tim or Jane, they you know left for another company or got promoted to another department. Okay, great. When that happens, I want to know two things. What's the contact information for them in the new department or the new company? Who replaced them at the old company? And now, essentially, you've gone from having one person to two people, exactly as you pointed out, who could generate business for you. I always like reaching out to people, past clients or colleagues when they get a promotion or they switch companies and say, hey, congratulations, that's amazing, you're starting this new role Do you need any support? Do you need any help? Are there any questions? We worked on Project XYZ. Do you need help with a similar outcome at this new company? Would you like some quick early wins on a project? And by maintaining those relationships, stimulating those conversations, it's easier to generate more work. So I love finding out when a past client has switched jobs or switched uh, career tracks or is working in a new company because suddenly it's an opportunity for me to make an entry into that company and add them as a new client, or at least start the process of seeing if they would make sense as a new client.
2: Are you trying to get more leads? Have you thought about Facebook ads? Or maybe you have tried Facebook ads, but it's not converting the way you want. Well, enter Super Spicy Media. longtime friend of the show and many time guest, Moita Mars goes over how to create a Facebook advertising funnel for free in her guide on how to do exactly that. So whether you're trying to get more leads or just increase the conversions of your Facebook ads, this is definitely a product for you. Like I said, it's free. If you go to devchat.tv slash super spicy, you can pick it up right now. Yeah. in in
3: uh, book yourself solid, Michael Port has a chapter on, on keeping in touch with your network, whether it's past clients or prospective clients or just friends and colleagues. And he, I think I, I'm paraphrasing, but I think I, if I remember correctly, he says every day as you're sort of tooling around on the Internet, procrastinating from what you're really supposed to be doing. One of the interesting articles that you read or that you come across or a tweet or something, send it to someone. hmm. So so that when you do kind of, you know, maybe you're in the famine cycle. You ha- you know, it's a, not the first time they're hearing from you. You've been like every once in a while, you've been uh, initiating a conversation with nothing to gain and just saying, hey, I, I saw this link and I thought of you. I thought you might be interested and may- maybe even a quick summary of why you think they might be interested, especially if it's a, a higher level type of person who doesn't have a lot of time to be like, you know, perusing links Say, mm-hmm. hey, I thought this, you know, uh, I can think of one recently I sent to a managing director of a photography firm related to uh, some of the stuff that came out of Google I.O. and say, hey, I think this is really interesting. The face recognition stuff is right up your alley. You should check it out. Boom. See you later. Bye. And of course, what are they going to do? Even if they don't read the thing, they're going to email you back and be like, wow, thanks for thinking of me. How's things going? And they start chatting with you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't do it every day. I, I know I should because whenever I do do it, it works. So if you were... In a situation like famine, it's probably a little too late. So, if you're listening to this and you're not in the famine uh, stage of the cycle, and you know, just start thinking about it. It's like, and, and maybe the pipe drive. I'm like, you might have convinced me of the pipe drive thing to kind of like have a system. And it's almost like a to do list, really, in a mm-hmm. way. But it's got a flow to it. And having a list of people in there, it's like. You know, where can I, these people probably don't have time, you know, these people probably have full-time jobs and direct reports and a million things to do. And they don't have time to be like dorking around the internet like I do. So, you know, and, and essentially as a, as a consultant, you do need to stay on top of things a little bit more, maybe a lot more than somebody who's an in-house manager. They've got other concerns. So... It's kind of incumbent on me to say, hey, I found this thing that I think might be really relevant for what you're doing. You probably didn't see it, so here you go. Whether it's from mm-hmm. Harvard Business view or TechCrunch, and and just keep that. I mean, you you you. One way that people talk about it is that you're providing value to them, and it's like, I don't. Yes, that's true, but I feel like it's just kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you know, they remember you. You stay top of mind. Uh, but it's also just you know and it's all i don't know it sounds so it sounds so like calculated when you put it like that that's all true but it just feels good yes it doesn't feel like yucky gross spammy salesy all those things you don't want to do it's mm-hmm. just nice and if you do it on a regular basis then you know it 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 clearly it it works it definitely works
4: very much so one of the activities i've been working on for the last few months is just mentally thinking through what is sort of the direct precursor to closing a deal that I have the most influence on. And like, we could think about proposals and you have some influence there. You could write a better proposal, but how do we increase the number of proposals or the number of uh, prospects we're talking with? And going backwards, it's really... The number of conversations we're stimulating and the number of meetings that result from those conversations, the number of calls we have just exploring a problem they might have or seeing if we're a good fit. And more and more, I keep coming back to the idea of, well, if we're able to increase the number of conversations we have with qualified candidates to work with us. That should translate to an increase in prospects, an increase in leads, and an increase in deals. Because if we're following up, we're providing value, we're stimulating these conversations, we're engaging in this relationship, making sure that, I I can't remember if it was Michael Porter or somebody else who said, maybe it was Alan Weiss, uh, you want to focus on the third or fourth sale, not the first sale. And I think that philosophy rings true in what we're talking about. If we're focused on continuing to provide value, if we're focused on continuing to share articles or resources and stay in touch... It's a focus on, well, maintaining that relationship to get to the third, the fourth, the fifth sale, not just the first sale. Okay, we're done, and now we never talk again. And I think it's important to be putting this intention behind it. And you're right, it can sound calculated and a little devious, and we're like, let's break down how to maintain these conversations. But (laughs) it comes down to like checklists and standard operating procedures in my mind. If we want to be successful at something. We need to document what our process is and follow that process and improve that process. Why not have a process for stimulating conversations, for generating referrals, for helping prevent a famine cycle or helping get you out of a famine cycle? It it makes good business sense to me, even if there's a bit of like, ooh, this is interesting and a tiny bit devious, but I think it's valuable and I think it's valuable for the recipient too.
3: Yeah, I mean, you could look at it as like, let me set up a system that is going to, by default, encourage me to help other people. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you could just full stop right there. Yep. And if you want to sort of, you can, if you're going to go slightly beyond that point, it's like, and maybe they'll help me back. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's really not rocket science when you think about it, but when you're, you know, heads down and you're just trying to bill hours and you got all these things going on when you're in the feast cycle, you know, you're trying to make hay while the sun shines and do everything, and so I tell your wife or your husband, oh, "I'm going to be busy in the next couple of weeks. This project is really, you know, but we're going to make a ton of money." And it's it's not, it's just not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And you just need to, if if it makes you feel icky to think about it in a calculated way, think about think about it like this: in a calculated way, I'm going to help people on a regular basis. Yep, yep. And leave it at but, that,
4: and that'll make think- you feel better. I think that's perfect and beautiful and you're absolutely right like it's it's about stimulating conversations and providing value helping people helping them get to that next level I try to follow up with past clients and say oh hey you know we worked on project x here's a tip I recently discovered that I didn't know back then that maybe it's a marketing focused tip or a marketing focused project we worked on following up and saying like by the way a new best practice I discovered is xyz Uh, evaluate that, implement it, give away some tip or some tactic maybe that I've talked about on my mailing list, but focus on providing that value to those past clients or to those lost leads or to those people in your network and see what comes from that.
0: And I think many of us are in the consulting business, not just for the business side of it, but I don't know, you guys, I really enjoy helping people. I really get a, a rush from knowing that people are able to do something, thanks to me, that they were not able to do before. And so it is actually kind of nice just to give help and tips and suggestions. I mean, I publish on my blog not just because I want people to sort of know who I am and become a, as they like to say, thought leader in a community. Oh God, how that's a terrible phrase. But <laughs> synergy. Um, I, I find, right. You know, <laughs> but but I, I learn things that I really think other people will benefit from, and w- why not share it with them? And I think mm-hmm. doing it in a more pointed. Individual way um, is probably going to be even more than you know bang for the buck in terms of uh, fit. Right, because you're thinking of one person or maybe a handful of clients who will really benefit from this.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Entirely, entirely, and one thing I like doing is building up a swipe file of relevant articles, relevant tips, relevant tactics that I could follow up with. And uh, I think when it comes to positioning and specialization, this becomes even easier since if you're focused on a singular target market, with a few hours of research, you could say, okay, I've identified you know four to six relevant articles or relevant content sources that I should check weekly or monthly and four to six tips that I could share. Well, now maybe you have eight pieces of follow-up material you could send to people who are good clients or good past clients or good leads to stimulate conversation, add value, share these resources. And so it's not go out and research every single time, but okay, cool. Let me check the swipe file. Oh, hey, I think, you know, Ruben would love this article. Let me send it to him with a couple of notes about why it's a good article and why it would be relevant to him and start that conversation that way. But building up a swipe file for this activity can be incredibly incredibly valuable
1: so Kai if you had
4: this like we've we've got a couple ideas here for
1: busting out of the famine part of the cycle if you had to strip it down to one what would be like the one thing that you would recommend is it the sort of reaching out and looking for referrals or maybe something else
4: I think it's, I'm going to cheat and give two answers here. I think the precursor is understanding your own conversion rate. So Mm. how many proposals turn into deals? How many people do you need to talk to to turn it into a proposal or a quote that you send out? Know that number. Because if you say, well, an average project is $5,000 and I need $10,000 this month or next month and 10% of people I talk to turn into a closed deal. Okay, we could crunch the numbers there and see exactly how many people to talk to, how many conversations we need to stimulate to get to that number. So that's step one. And I think step two, reaching out with a referral, reaching out to add value, stimulating those conversations, lets you activate those people to get to that critical number, to get to those quotes and those proposals and that revenue. So step one is understanding that aspect of your business metrics. What's your conversion rate from we had a conversation or they are a prospect to They paid me money and it turned into a deal and use that as your metric for the number of people you need to reach out to, the number of conversations you need to start. I personally really like the referral-based outreach because it allows you to subtly, passively hint, hey, you know, I have an opening and I could work with you. But it's not that direct ask. It's saying, do you know any other companies who would benefit from this or are looking for this sort of help? And then that could sort of go in either direction, either generating referrals for your business or connecting you with new people that your past client or your colleague is aware of and knows would benefit from your service.
1: Mm, Nice. Yeah, I like how if you quantify the scope of what you need to do, that subtracts anxiety from it. Because I'm thinking back to those times when I've been in that famine cycle and part of the anxiety is just like, you don't know what it takes to fix that, right? You just kind of start panicking and trying a bunch of stuff. And I like how, what you're suggesting is
4: more defined the way a project would be reach Mm -hmm. out to this many people. Very much so. Yeah. And I think when you get into a famine mode, it's very easy to throw everything against the wall, chase every opportunity, And that can work out. And I have done that in the past, and it's gotten me out of famine. But it's also pushed me closer to burnout. I think it comes down to intentionality and systems. If you know approximately how many people to talk with to close a deal, okay, great. I need to talk with 30 people. That's suddenly a lot less scary, at least in my mind, than I need to find a large client. How do I do that? I don't know. Let's find out. But if you know, (laughs) hey, let's contact 30 folks and see what happens, we're taking a activity. We have a key metric. We could say, okay, every week for the next three weeks, I'm going to contact 10 people. Maybe some days you end up contacting 15, maybe some five, whatever. It ends up giving you a clearly defined quantifiable target. And then you're able to say, okay, I'm getting a better response rate than I expected, or I'm getting a lower response rate than I expected. How can I improve on what I'm doing? But it takes this Fear and scarcity based mentality. Shit, I don't have any clients. I need a client fast and turns it into something that's very quantifiable. Let's talk to X people and very actionable. I'm going to stimulate a conversation focused on letting them know I could help people in their network with this problem who are in this market. And yeah, I'm also available if they'd like to work together. But it gives us a framework and it gives us a specific goal to aim towards. Is there
1: any reason to spread it out or would you suggest just? Whatever that number is that you need to achieve your typical conversion
4: rate, just reach – contact that many people as quickly as possible. I'm a fan of spreading it out for two reasons. The first is I like a consistent velocity more than a flurry of activity. And I think, again, for habit-forming – It's better if you're focused on contacting five, 10, 15 people a week, just so you build up that habit. And even when you're out of the famine cycle, you still say, okay, well, I have a regular weekly habit. I need to contact this many prospects. And that helps prevent a future famine cycle. The second reason is it's very easy to say, okay, I need to contact 50 people. You blast out 50 emails and you realize like your messaging was off or your call to action was off and you've already gone through the list of prospects you identified by approaching it slowly and incrementally What I've discovered is you could start your outreach to these people and then say, oh, I could include a better article or I've gotten feedback that this doesn't make sense. Or after reviewing the email and sending it out a number of times, I see how I could write a better version, too. So you're able to then iterate forward as you contact more people and use it as a learning experience. There is, I think, sometimes the necessity to contact the maximum number of people as soon as you can if – the clock is ticking, you're low on funds, you want to bring in that work, you need to stimulate those conversations. That's a fine tactic to use in that scenario. But I think the overall better strategy is slow, consistent velocity. That way, you don't have to worry about getting burned out. You don't have to worry about not building a habit. And you're able to benefit from this iteration on the content you're using on the emails you're sending, the articles you're sharing, the value you're adding, and it slowly gets better over time.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. There's one other thing I wanted to touch on. I've seen this in myself. I'm actually curious if any of the other panelists have done this. What I've seen in the past in myself is that there's a period of denial that happens right after something changes. So something changes could be, um, I get noticed that a project is winding down sooner than expected. That would be one example, right? That's the thing Mm -hmm. that changes that is the early, the sort of, (laughs) <laughs> like if you've lived on the coast, you know what the uh, tsunami early warning system is. Like the, so the, the famine early warning system goes off and and I'm like, okay, I should be doing something. But then there's a kind of period of denial sets in where mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, maybe maybe luck will save me this time. Maybe luck will be in my favor this time. Maybe I won't actually have to do the hard work of what Kai is talking about here. And in the worst
0: case, that's true, <laughs> right? In the worst case, it actually does happen and you don't learn your lesson.
1: That's true, right, because it kicks the can down the road. I, I agree with you calling that the worst case, even though that's what I'm secretly hoping for, right, is to be saved from the necessity of having to do the hard work of developing something that prevents this from happening in the future. So I'm curious if others resonate with that and Kai, if you have any advice about that.
4: Oh I 100% resonate with it. It it's something that I've encountered in my own business and in my own self and I see in coaching students and colleagues and friends and I think it's a natural human reaction but it doesn't need to be the default reaction that something has changed. Change is scary, but change is okay and I think, at least for me, it's been a process of focusing on some stoic principles, realizing that, well, I'm not in control of everything. Sometimes unexpected things happen. What I do have control over is myself, my emotional and mental reactions, and the actions I take in the real world in response to this. And focusing on that has helped. But I could tell you honestly, even now, if like there's a sudden shift in a project or something gets canceled, my initial reaction can be like, oh, I don't want to think about this. Let's hope it just works itself out. But I'm learning to get better at recognizing that and saying, well, is this what I want my default response and impulse to be? If not, what's one tiny little action I could take right now? Just do one small five or 10 minute task, Kai, to start rebuilding those neural pathways, retraining myself to react in a different way. Oh, hey, I just found out Big Project X was canceled or is, uh, you know, moved down the line by three months. I was expecting that money and instead it's going to be next quarter. Ah, I could freak out now. Let me instead, I could still freak out. I give myself permission to freak out. But first, I'm going to send two emails to people and just start building that habit of, okay, an unexpected thing happened in my business. I want my default reaction to be proactive rather than reactive. Okay, it didn't go the way I expected, fine. Let me contact two people or two people previously who wanted to work together, but I was booked solid then. Let's reactivate that relationship or stimulate that conversation and relationship to see what we can generate. So I completely empathize with it. I experience it myself. And the solution I found so far is working slowly and deliberately to retrain My internal, almost automatic click, were response to those types of situations to be focused on proactive outreach or a business building activity rather than a reactive fear based reaction. The monkey mind and the lizard brain are strong, though.
3: Mm -hmm. I have something like four students that within two weeks of each other, all had the same thing happen to them. Where the the maybe it's maybe it's a, a seasonal thing. I don't know, but they they all had a major management shakeup at their whale client Mm -hmm. where either the project contact left or was fired or their boss was replaced. And in every single case, it brought the whole project into question. And, and it's exactly like Philip said, like everyone's like, Oh no, maybe it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. And I'm like, no, it's not going to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Pretend it's not going to be fine. Because it's probably not going to be fine.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, yeah, because I've been inside organizations, and when that kind of thing happens, new, you know, whatever CMO or director of marketing comes in, they want their own team, they want their own consultants, they want their own freelancers. Mm-hmm. They want to they want to return favors that they owe to other people, and they don't know you or care about you. And the the um, I, I had this sort of on my daily list. I had this thread going about trusting your clients and one, you know, someone brought up a great point, which is like, well, okay, well what if the people, cause you don't trust the company, you trust the, your contacts. What if they're replaced? And that, and that's the thing. It's like all of a sudden you're in this situation where you're, you're the person that you trusted who you've developed a, a deep and ongoing relationship with it. Your client is now gone. That trust will go with them to the new company. Mm-hmm. Like, Kai and I think Philip also were talking about earlier, but it's not with the old company anymore. So now all of a sudden your value has plummeted and you need to, you know, face that and prepare for what I think the odds are pretty good of happening, which is that whatever you're working on is going to get killed. Yep. So another, another red flag sort of thing to watch out for.
1: Actually just piling right on there. We, it's easy to get into certain client relationships and feel like they're going to last for forever, and they almost never do, and that's not abnormal. Like, that's that's the nature of of this type of work is that... Yeah, they shouldn't. It's it's the, ver- the very few that actually last more than, um, I don't know, three to five years is probably, even at the outside, for most consulting relationships, kind of a long relationship. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so on several occasions, I've come home from a great meeting with a client and said to my wife, "I have the best client. This is going to be such a terrific relationship. You have no idea." And she says to me, "None of these clients ever last forever. You have to remember that going in. Like it's going to be great, maybe, but it's not forever. And it's—I uh, mean, that's my wife's job, right? Like, be 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 the realist." But she's also seen me come back from so many of these meetings convinced that I have found a client for life, and they never are. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something to remember going into these relationships.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're, if you're a consultant, now there's, a, there's a, a range. So if you're an independent professional who's, you know, in my world, you're a software developer and you work for yourself. When you're first starting out, you're usually a freelancer, and you are kind of, in most cases, to be fair, you're really just staff augmentation. You're an external employee. And as you, you just a pair of hands it does some stuff that you're really good at. And as you move up the value chain, you're going to move into the consultant zone. You can't just start calling yourself a consultant and keep doing the same things you did when you called yourself a freelancer. So as you move up that chain, once you move into the consulting space, you're doing less handwork and you're doing more strategy work, more advisory types of things. If the, the stuff you're doing how do I put this? Organizations don't like a lot of change. So if they, the the time that they want a consultant to advise them is when they're going through something that they perceive as very risky, high stakes type of change. And they want someone who's an expert to kind of, you know, hold their hand through it and decrease the amount of risk. If that's not over in a short period of time, less than a year, you're not doing a good job, or you weren't hired to do the thing that you think you were hired to do. So the consulting a pure, an actual consulting gig should not last that long, like a year, maybe eight months, eight months to a year if you've got a really big integration project, maybe. But after that, the value starts to go down because they're they've moved at the organization almost out of self-preservation has moved out of change mode and they're back to like optimization mode. They're like, sweet, we made it over this hurdle. Now we're going to capitalize on this and get up to the next plateau and then we'll need to change again. That's where your value drops significantly. And if you're, you know, like me, my main product is like a, you know, five figure monthly retainer advisory retainer. It's not ours. It's for advice. And once they get over that hump, all of a sudden my fee starts to look a little pricey Mm -hmm. because the risk has gone way down. And they don't need that kind of help anymore. So, you know, I'm piling on Philip, piling on me. It's like a big, big freelancer show pig pile over here. (laughs) Cuddle puddle. (laughs) Cuddle puddle.
4: Cuddle puddle.
3: (laughs) So, Kyle, I'm going to run by
0: you two things that I've done in the past uh, when I've had famine, famines happen. um, And we'll see what you think. Uh, Hopefully good things, but if not, I'll learn in the past. So, one was... um, when I was sort of working month by month with doing development work and consulting work, so I would sort of look at my schedule for the next month on like the 28th, 29th of each month. I'd say, okay, what do I have moving forward? And if I saw that I had holes in my schedule, I'd email um, a few of my clients. And I'd say, listen, I have some openings in the next month. Um, if you're interested in getting this sort of first come, first serve. I didn't phrase it twice this way, but um, I'd, I'd be happy to provide you with some services on those days.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it actually worked it worked okay. I'm sure that I could have uh, sort of described the value proposition better, but that seemed to work okay for like the, the immediate thing. Um, the second thing that I've done, and this is just like literally in the last month, is when I do courses, typically people can cancel up to two weeks in advance with no penalty. I mean, that's typically their, their rules, and it's okay. So I actually had four days canceled on me. I thought, uh-huh, now what do I do? So I said, well, time has come for me to try using my mailing list. So I emailed my mailing list and said, hey, I'm going to be teaching some courses online. Who wants to sign up? And I didn't get as much as I would have from companies teaching, but I got something and it gave me an opportunity to experiment in a totally new direction, which is starting to sell to my list and sell online courses. And they are now getting used to the fact that I'll be hawking these things to them. Um, So I'm I'm wondering what you think about these and what I could do to sort of improve it.
4: No, I absolutely love it. Uh, I like number one a lot, and I think it's a great Easy system for somebody to grab onto and start using. I have, you know, a project was canceled. I have this week free. I have some uh, open time in my schedule. Reach out to active or recent clients and say, I have an opening. Are you interested in help with something? Da 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 da. It could be a great way to stimulate those conversations and generate additional repeat projects, which is another way I think of sort of escaping the valley of feast or famine that people don't often focus on. It doesn't necessarily need to be a new client. It could be stimulating a repeat project. So I love that as a strategy. Your second strategy, I think, touches on something that is incredibly valuable how a famine cycle or a low client period could actually be useful. If you've budgeted for it, if you have savings, if you are in a good financial position and could withstand a short time period or a long time period without clients, well, it doesn't need to be framed as famine. And I think this starts to push on the abundance scarcity mentality aspect of it. Instead of thinking of it as famine, think about it as, okay, I have a week free. What can I do to work on the business, to generate revenue within the business in a new way that I didn't have time to do before? And I think your example here of, hey, let me email my list, advertise uh, uh, an online training. You didn't make as much money as you might have from an existing client or the client that canceled, but you discovered that there is value there. There is money in the list. And so you were able to take this period that could be viewed as a negative, oh, hey, uh, uh, I don't have a client for this period and turn it into a positive. What's a business building activity or multiple business building activities I could use this time for? And I think this is how famine could actually be useful. If we view it as an oscillation, not between feast or famine, but client work and personal work or business development work, we could take these periods of low client work and use them to improve our underlying business. You discovered a revenue stream you had considered, but hadn't seen uh, uh, actually generate revenue for your business. And now you know, oh, hey, I could periodically reach out to my list, advertise a training, and have that fill a client slot or a training slot and generate revenue for your business.
5: Yeah, something I tell my coaching clients is that if you don't have clients, the only thing you're allowed to do during that time is to get more clients.
4: Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm.
5: You don't use it for other stuff, but you use it. To, if you're not working for clients, you're getting more clients in that block of time. But I also get them to like schedule out like how many hours per week they're going to do in different activities. So,
4: Yes. No, I completely agree. I also like having people commit to a number of people that they'll email either daily or weekly just so they have yep. a specific yep. quantifiable goal to aim for.
5: I make them send me a report every week, too.
4: Ooh, I was going to say you should like make
5: them you. Wow. <laughs> you
3: guys are tough. it's tough Uh, love people people resist this stuff like you wouldn't believe it's like you're trying to push them off of a like like a plank
4: and it's scary I mean honestly working on your own business can be scary it's 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 your baby it can get to a point where you feel comfortable with how it is and a famine cycle hits and like we talked about before you could hope that it won't happen you could hope for some luck Uh, you could hope everything will be fine but the truth is you have to sort of go outside of your comfort zone push yourself outside of the familiar to discover what would work as you move forward.
0: Uh, We should probably head into picks. unless you guys have any further comments or questions you want to raise.
2: Do you run your own freelance business or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side? Well then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere. and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. All
1: right, uh, Philip. What you got for us this week?
2: This one's for
1: the <clears throat> other dog owners out there who have an older dog. I had a harness for my dog for a long time that was just kind of a, these sort of webbing straps that would go around his chest and it was fine. And then someone said, why don't you get this other one, which is by this company, Ruffwear. And the thing that's great about it is it has a handle on the back of it that I can just grab. It's like a handle you would have on a piece of luggage or whatever i mean it's not quite like that it's not like one of those old back a light handles on a little pivot but it's a fabric handle and it's very helpful if you have a dog who like mine has arthritis and his weekend his back end is getting kind of weak so like if he gets on a if he stands on a floor that's not carpeted that's smooth <laughs> like his back legs will kind of start sliding out a little bit and they will sort of like turn into a split it's uh, you know funny, but not funny for him because uh, you know it's arthritis and uncomfortable. This thing's great because I can just grab it and lift him up like like he's a little piece of luggage. So I'll drop a, sh- a link to that in the show notes. That's obviously a very niche item, but for me has been very helpful um, in assisting him when he needs help moving around. So that's the Roughwear uh, Webmaster Secure Reflective Multi-Use Harness for Dogs. <laughs> Again, I'll link to that in the show notes. That's it for
4: my pick for this week. Uh, my pick would say it's actually something sort of unconventional. I just was redoing my home office and had a big Home Depot order come. And I've always wanted to have a gigantic whiteboard on one of the walls of my office. And I've used the uh, shower laminate boards to create a fall whiteboard before in offices before. Uh, they're like fifteen dollars a piece for a four by eight section at Home Depot. They work eighty percent, seventy percent as well as of, as a traditional whiteboard, but. For 30 bucks, I was able to get two of these four-foot-by-eight-foot sections. The wall behind me is eight-foot-by-eight feet exactly. Screw them in there, and now I have this wonderful, gigantic whiteboard to do project planning, wireframing, outlining on. It has been one of the best investments I've made in my office. It's been up for a week, and I've used it every single day. So if you've ever had that fantasy of like the gigantic whiteboard wall, Take a trip to your Home Depot. Uh, for under forty dollars, you could get all the supplies you need. Uh, if you Google "shower panel whiteboard" or "shower laminate whiteboard," you'll find a couple guides online on what to buy. But it was an incredibly great investment, and uh, I'm I'm absolutely in love with it. If you want something that washes off better, there's shower crayons,
5: typically for children, but so they can Ooh. color in the tub. That is excellent.
0: So, Curtis, what, you, what do you have? Any? Uh, I mean. Not that I'm against shower crayons. of
5: course. Any other picks for us? Uh, shower crowns and bath toys? No. Um, yeah, I just released a new book called "Becoming a Master," which is about uh, how to become a master in the midst of all the, I guess all the blocks that get thrown up for you. And that's uh, my first book released out on the Kindle. Congratulations! Wow! Excellent. Good for you. And uh, Jonathan, any picks?
3: Yes, um, I was I. I could literally go through six that Kai's talk inspired me to think of, but I'll just keep it simple. Uh, One is a podcast appearance by Seth Godin on Everyone Hates Marketers. It's a typical Seth stuff, if you're familiar with Seth Godin, but the first five or ten minutes or so, the host challenges Seth to create a business. What would you do if you had to create a business, Seth, in 90 days with $1,000? And it's just pure gold. It's complete genius. And, you know, to loop back to my mantra, it's an example of how you can go from zero to 60 without billing by the hour and starting to, you know, build yourself up as a a go-to expert on a very particular thing for which people derive a lot of value or from which people derive a lot of value. Uh, Another podcast episode since we're in podcast bill here, uh, Blair ends on freelance transformation. Really good episode. That's well worth your time. Blair always has good things to say. I agree with 99% of the things he says. And I've got a new uh, email course that is super relevant to this conversation because it's I think probably the easiest way to get off of hourly billing and find some time in your schedule to uh, generate leads and to, to, Really get used to selling something like a product instead of a really tough to sell custom service every single time you're in a meeting. So go to get ready, how to build your first productized service dot com and sign up for that uh, free email course. And that's it.
0: Wow. Shocking that domain was not taken previously being so short and catchy.
3: G dot co.
4: taken. Turns out that was
3: taken.
4: I once had the Uh. chance to uh, buy K.ai. This was 10 years ago. Wow. And it was, I I decided not to buy it because it was $200 every two years. And I was like, that's too much money, man. I, domain names. And now I'm like, no, Kai of the (laughs) past. Why are you a fool? (laughs)
3: That would be so baller.
4: Oh, yeah. What's your domain? Me at K.ai. Excuse me? (laughs)
3: it's almost too Um, short to make sense
4: it is
0: (laughs) so I guess uh, so my picks for this week so first of all I decided after years of uh, running my own Unix boxes and realizing that there were fewer and fewer reasons for me to do that just like for my own servers which were increasingly just running WordPress um, and I don't have time to deal with the updates I mean it's not hard and I enjoy doing it but as we always say on the show, like you need to be spending your time where you're producing the most value. And my value is not running my own servers and pulling out my hair over those things. So I finally decided to move to a uh, um, a WordPress-only hosting company. So I moved to something called Flywheel, which I'd heard about and played with in the past. And I'm actually pretty pleased so far. Uh, their sales and service have been very good from everything I've seen so far in the last, what, two weeks or so. Um, the process was easy. And especially for people who don't know anything about Unix and setting those things up. Uh, they were very nice. They were very decent to deal with. Um, if they crash and burn on me in the future, then uh, I will, of course, report it to everyone out here. Um, and so, so that's number one. Uh, number two is, since I got a plan that gives me 10 sites there, I decided to set up something called practiceyourpython.com, uh, which is a list of all the different places you can go for exercises for practicing Python. Uh, that's obviously for Python developers. But I keep getting the question from people in my courses and online, like, can kind I of go to practice? And it's sort of um, embarrassing to say to them, well, there really isn't anything out there, so you should just buy my book or subscribe to my service. So I needed something in between that and also maybe to add some link uh, link juice to mine. So um, practiceyourpython.com has a list of everything I know of. And if you know of other things that are not on that list, I'd be happy to add them, including my stuff, but not only. And the third pick is a book recommendation. So David Plotz is a former editor of Slate, and he's a member of the Political Gab Fest, which I love listening to. And he recently reminded me of a book that he wrote years ago, which I hadn't read. And it's called The Genius Factory. That's right, The Genius Factory, The Curious History of the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank. And this was – oh, no. Am I still there? Oh, someone had trouble. Oh. Um, anyway, the the um, so the story is basically that someone wanted to have a sperm bank – where it would only be Nobel Prize winners donating, and only Mensa women allowed to use the sperm. And this actually did exist, and he went and tracked down everyone involved with this thing. And he is just a delightful, fun writer. So I definitely recommend people who want to hear about modern eugenics, uh, or something close to it, how it could work.
4: This is crazy cool. This is going to the top of my reading list.
0: (laughs) It's really... And he's he's a really, really, really funny writer. So he, he... Takes it with an appropriate degree of whimsy, um, <laughs> right. which which is high.
4: Amazon is asking if I want to add this to my baby registry. And uh, no, <laughs> but thank you, Amazon. Thank you very much.
0: Kai, thank you, as always, for uh, being with us on the show and providing great advice.
4: Oh, thank you so much for uh, having I me. I, it's always an honor to be on the show, and uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed the episode.
0: And we will put all the different ways that you mentioned at the top of the show, how to reach you uh, and your different email courses and publications and whatnot. And they are many and they are excellent. So people should read them. I will put that in the show notes for people to follow. Everyone else, thanks for being here on the panel. And thanks to you, dear listener, for listening to us once again. And we will be back here next week on The Freelancer Show. Bye. Bye.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.